Good morning. So uh, I love when a plan comes together. Let's thank them again for playing for us. I really appreciate it. All right. Um, okay, so we're in Philippians, and, uh, and today we get to hear a testimony in the book of Philippians uh, from Paul, his own t- uh, personal testimony. So I love uh, hearing testimonies. I love hearing people's stories. So whenever I first meet someone, especially if I'm um, looking to uh, bring somebody onto the team, um, I love hearing people's stories, how they came to faith, um, what age they came to faith, what were the circumstances. That's one of the first things I will often ask people is to tell me their story of how they came to faith. It's one of my favorite things to hear from somebody. Every year, uh, TBC puts on a men's conference in late January. We go to a place about two hours of he- from here, and we go to a men's conference. And one of my favorite things about the men's conference is there are men in this church that will stand in front of about 300 men, and they will share their story. And I don't mean like the five-minute version. I mean like the 25-minute version. And there are men that I've known in this church for years but never heard their story. And they'll stand in front of us, and they'll tell a lot of things that you really can't tell a mixed audience or tell most people. And it's powerful. It's one of my favorite parts of the men's conference. And I've heard all types of testimonies at the men's conference. And in a place like that, if you just look at the surface, because everyone at a men's conference looks kind of the same because they're all walking around and, and they're carrying Bibles and they're going to their little sessions and everyone looks real spiritual. But then you hear their personal story and you're like, wow, I never knew that that man had been through all those things. And it's always powerful to hear um, these stories. And I've heard all types at that men's conference. I've heard the kind where somebody was raised in the church, but then they rebelled against God, and they lived a life of sin, but then came back to Christ later on. I've heard the ones where they spent most of their life as an atheist or agnostic, and then came to know Christ later in life. I've heard the ones where someone grew up in the church, and they were a good moral person, but then they realized that you're saved by grace and not by works, and then they became truly saved or truly aware of what salvation even meant later in life. And I've heard those kinds of stories. Now, the last one I just described to you, the person who was raised in the church, but then came to realize later on that they, you know, had been putting all their stock in works, in their good works or holiness, but then they realized they're saved by grace and by faith, and they, they truly came to Christ later in life. When I describe that kind of testimony, that's what many of you refer to as the boring testimony. Because that might be your story. Many of you are raised in the church. Your families may have come here for a long time. And you might see your story as a boring testimony or a boring story. There's no drugs. There's no sexual involvement. There's no Satan worship. Right? Like, you've not had this, like, life of just complete and utter rebellion against God, at least on the outside. And so you refer to yourself as, I've got a boring testimony. And what I hope you you learned this morning is that there is no such thing as a boring testimony. There's no such thing as a boring testimony. We're going to hear Paul's story today. And we have to remember for a minute, like, who he used to be. Because we read Paul, 
And we picture it, we're like, yeah, Paul. Paul's uh, one of the greatest saints of all time. Wrote a lot of the New Testament. And that's all we think about. But we've got to remember his, his, his actual story of what happened to him. Several years ago, I asked the students in this room, I said, tell me who, what famous person would you be most surprised if they came to know Jesus? And my students back then said Lady Gaga. That's who they said. I'm not sure who you might say today, but back then it was Lady Gaga. And you might be really surprised. I mean, if you've seen her on those like MTV award shows or any other kind of show, and you hear music, you hear what she talks, what she cares about, her sensual outfits, her sensual music, everything she stands for. Yes, it might be really, really surprising to see someone like Lady Gaga come to know Jesus and start following Jesus, but it still wouldn't rise to the level of someone like Paul who came to know Christ. It wouldn't rise to that level yet. You might, maybe music's not your thing. Maybe you're more the intellectual type. And so this next person is a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's a professor, retired professor at Oxford University. And he is an atheist. He's written lots of books about atheism. He is what, uh, part of a movement called the New Atheists, which it has really taken a turn. Instead of them sitting back and saying, yeah, we just don't believe any of that, they're writing a lot more books now saying, we don't believe any of that, and here's why you shouldn't believe any of that. There's they're, they're now going on the offensive, saying we've got to snuff this thing called religion out. And here's something he says, one of his famous quotes. He says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is how he describes God, or what people think of as God. And so he's an atheist. And yes, it'd be surprising to hear that Richard Dawkins is a Christian, but it still wouldn't rise to the level of someone like Paul. If we're going to find someone modern-day parallel who might rise to that level, it'd be someone like this next picture. It'd be someone like, I can't pronounce that guy's name, but he is the leader of ISIS. This would be the modern-day equivalent of someone like Paul who came to know Jesus. Many of you know the last several years, ISIS has been rounding up Christians in certain parts of the world, persecuting them, sometimes even killing them to snuff out religion, snuff out Christianity, and they are doing so in certain parts of the world. And this is the equivalent of what Paul was doing way back then. He was rounding up Christians. He was persecuting many, responsible for many of their deaths because he was so committed to snuffing out this little religion called Christianity. And Paul wasn't just a guy. He was the leader. Like he was the main leader and persecutor of the church. To the early church, he was like a terrorist. He was a terrorist. If you became a Christian back in that day, you did not want to hear Paul knocking on your door. He would split apart families. He would take mom and dad and take them down to be tried by the Sanhedrin. 
Kids are being separated from parents. They may not see mom and dad ever again. This man had evil just throughout his soul as he went about persecuting the church. But we're not going to read this uh, actual story, but in Acts chapter 9, you can read it later on. One day, God just gets a hold of him in this amazing experience as Paul's on the road to Damascus. He was known as Saul back then, Saul of Tarsus, before his name was changed to Paul. He's on this road to Damascus, and he gets a vision from Jesus, and he gets saved miraculously. And so today we're going to hear Paul's testimony as he writes to the Philippians. Many, many years later, he writes about his testimony of, of, of how he became a Christian and what God set him free from in his faith as a follower of Christ. So Paul tells us three things in this passage. He tells us, first of all, what a Christian is. He also tells us what, a, I'm sorry, what a Christian isn't. He also tells us what a Christian is and also tells us how we are to know Christ. And I want you to remember just the, the background of his story as we look at the words he's writing to, to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, up up until this point in the book of Philippians, Paul's been fairly nice and fairly encouraging to the Philippians. But in this little section here, he takes a turn. And he says, look out for the dogs, these evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And so the question is, what's he talking about? Why such harsh language? Well, one lesson we learn here, I think, is um, you, you see name-calling in the Bible. So if your parents get on you for that, you can just say, hey, look, you know, Paul did it, right? So um, don't apply that directly, but you get the idea. But Paul's using really strong language when he's talking about this group of people. So the question is, who's he talking about as he says this? Who are those who mutilate the flesh? Who are these people? Well, if you remember back, we, we did Joshua, the book of Joshua, back in, in the spring. And we did a sermon, and it was awkward. Uh, we talked a little bit about circumcision, right? And uh, I'm not going to, listen, I'm not going to get detailed here, graphic, but I've got to explain a little thing about this. Um, do I need to tell my, my circumcision jokes to, to cut through the awkward tension? Because I'll do it. I will do it, all right? Because no matter how you slice it, never mind, never mind. Um, you get the idea. I, there's little kids over here doing that. I've got to be careful, little kids. Sorry, Kendall. Um, all right, so, so listen. Like, this can be an awkward thing, but just follow with me on this. So earlier in Genesis, God makes this covenant with Abraham. So what did this ritual of circumcision mean for Israel? It had a meaning behind it, really deep spiritual meaning. And so early in Genesis, God makes his covenant with Abraham. And he, a covenant is a relationship that's based on a promise. That's what a covenant is. And, and God said that the sign of the covenant was going to be circumcision. Now, 
it wasn't just Israel who did those kinds of things. It was other nations, too. Even some pagan nations did those kinds of things for medical reasons. But for God and, and Israel, is going to be this sign of the covenant. So it's a, essentially, it's a symbol of this inward reality. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. So think of my wedding ring. This wedding ring is an outward symbol of an inward reality. And this was the role this was supposed to play for the nation of Israel. It was supposed to symbolize purity, and they're supposed to be holy as a nation, set apart as a nation. And if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see words like circumcised and uncircumcised, use of, of in, in a spiritual sense, of things like ears and eyes and lips and hearts. God will say, you were unholy in how you're living your life. You're unholy in your heart. And I use these, this metaphor to describe people spiritually. So this, this ritual act didn't make someone pure. In the same way, this ring, just having it on my finger, isn't what makes me married. But it's a symbol on the outside of something on the inside. And so in the early days of the church, there were some these Jewish Christians who began saying that if people are going to be saved, become Christians, followers of Christ, then they need to get circumcised like the Jews were. Because they saw this ritual as like the entry point for salvation. This is how they viewed it. And Paul, in many of his writings, will say things like, no, this is not, we don't add, it's not Jesus plus something else. You're adding works to the gospel. You're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not going to add things to the gospel and make people work for their salvation. So Paul says that these kinds of people in Philippians, he calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. These are harsh words. And if I use that word, if I say that someone's an evildoer, if I use the word evil with someone in our context, your mind instantly goes to these outward works of evil, and everyone's mind will go somewhere different, you know, but your, your mind's going to go somewhere outward, like, oh, what, what must they do to be called evil? When Paul is, is calling these people evil, they're actually people that are pretty cleaned up on the outside. These are the religious people. These are the ones who you look at and say, wow, like they've got it all together. This is the religious elite that he's calling evildoers. And the reason why he uses that word, such a strong word to describe someone who tries to add things to the gospel, is because one of the greatest evils is to add things to the gospel and make it seem like someone has to work for their salvation. It's why he uses such strong language. So first off, what a Christian isn't. A Christian isn't someone who's been through a ritual or simply prayed a salvation prayer. Back then, circumcision was the ritual that they were trying to get people to do so they could become a Christian. And ours might be something different. It might be church attendance. It might be baptism. It might be praying a salvation prayer. As long as you go through these rituals, then you can be a Christian. 
This is partly why we're doing one of our equip groups on Wednesday is, is how do I know I'm saved? Because some of you have struggled with this where you're like, okay, I did this ritual. This one church said, if I just say these words, this little salvation prayer, then that makes me a Christian. And so am I saved? Am I not saved? I don't know if I'm saved. And this is why we're doing this kind of stuff because this is what we struggle with. Several years ago, I told you about the TBC Men's Conference. Several years ago, there was a dad who stood on the stage and shared his testimony at the men's conference. And his, his, his story was great. I loved hearing his story of how he came to faith in Christ. But he said this one little thing that really bothered me about his own kids. And he said this statement. He said, both of my kids have prayed the prayer of salvation, so I know they're saved. But they've just not been living like it for the last 10 years. But I know they're saved. And I went to that dad afterwards a few weeks later and said, hey, I loved hearing your story, but there's just one little thing I just I have a hard time hearing a dad say, and that is, you know, you said that your, your kid prayed this prayer when they were young, and so they're saved but they've not been following or walking with Jesus for the last 10 years. I said, as a youth pastor, I would just caution you to maybe say to your kid, like, hey, you know what? Like, I don't, I know you did this ritual back when you were four or five, but I don't know that you're saved if you're not walking with him. And I'm not saying you're saved by works, like you're only saved. I'm not saying you're only saved if you're perfect. I'm not saying that. But if someone shows no vitality and no desire to walk with him or, or to live with him, then I would begin to question and say, well, is that person truly a follower of Jesus? I, I wouldn't put so much stock back in the ritual and just say, oh, yeah, they did the ritual, therefore they're absolutely saved because of the ritual. No, there's no, there's no life-giving faith. You don't see evidence of faith. It's okay to say to your kid, I don't know that you're saved. I don't see life here. And call them to salvation. And so this is kind of what people are, are doing here. They're putting all this stock in a ritual, in this, this activity. And so we're not saved by simply just praying a prayer and just uttering some magic words. We're saved by belief and faith. Now, Romans 10, 9, and 10, I will, I will tell this to people Whenever I'm going through like a baptism discussion with somebody, I'll say, look, Romans 10, 9, and 10 talks about this confession with the mouth. And it says, believe, it refers to belief in the heart. And Paul writes in Romans 10, then confess with the mouth. And so I'm not saying that you can't pray to God and say, God, I want to be saved. I want to follow you. I would actually encourage you to say those words to him but do it out of a belief in the heart. It should be an overflow of what's happening in the heart. The belief in the heart should lead to this confession with the mouth. You don't just slap a confession on somebody and say, all right, they did the ritual, therefore they're a Christian. It's got to come from this belief in the heart, which Romans 10 also talks about. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And so look down at verse uh, 3. He says, for we are the circumcision 
When he says that, he means this, like the real circumcision, like those that are truly saved. That's who he's talking about. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's saying, we're the true circumcision. It's really about the heart. And so the question is, what are the marks of being a Christian? Here's some marks of what it means to be a Christian. The first is, a Christian worships by the Spirit of God. Worship is not just Sunday morning music. I know whenever we say worship, there's a band on the stage. They did an awesome job today. But it's not just, worship is not just a band on the stage and you sitting out there singing. That's not worship. Worship is a posture of the heart. Someone surrendered to God with a posture of the heart of worship. That's true worship. So every true believer has the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwelling them, living in them, empowering them. And in John chapter 4, Jesus says to this woman at the well, he says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And it's this spirit that's dwelling in us that enables us to worship him. So the Holy Spirit is, is enabling you to be able to worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you, enabling you, empowering you to be able to worship him. And this kind of worship is stirred up from within and doesn't just get slapped on with some ritual. It's not like that. The second point is a Christian boasts only in Jesus. A Christian boasts only in Jesus. And I think for you and I, we boast in what we find our confidence in. We boast in what we find our confidence in. What do you tell other people about yourself? Whenever you talk about yourself, where does the conversation go? Does it go to your accomplishments? Where do you find your confidence? And where do your conversations go when the topic is somehow on yourself? Does it go to your achievements? Because here's the fear that I have in myself and also in many of us here. Many of you know in your mind that salvation is from God. And that it's a gift from God to us. And so you know that in your mind, but as it pertains to everything else in our lives, we still tend to boast in ourselves. If I were to quiz you on where does salvation come from, is it a gift or do you work for it, you might get the answer right. But when it comes to your everyday life and my everyday life, we still tend to boast in ourselves. So a Christian boasts only in Jesus Christ. The second point, or third point, a Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. This is connected to the last point you made here. Each one of us are prone to trust other things for salvation. This is the other side of the coin. So if we're to boast only in Jesus, then conversely, we are also to put no confidence in the flesh. And again, here's my fear, is that most of us know we're supposed to only boast in Jesus, but we still put a lot of confidence in the flesh. So if we only boast in Christ, then we must also put no confidence in our flesh in the way being described here. 
concerning acceptance before God. So Paul had this list of things that he was like, he was of, of a certain family in the nation of Israel. He was, had all these things he could point to and say, look at me, look how great I am. And so concerning your acceptance before God, your family of origin does not matter. I'm amazed at how often I'll hear someone say, if I say, are you a believer, follower of Christ, or how did you become a Christian? And they'll say things like, yeah, my family, we're all Christians. As if you become a Christian by just being in a certain family. That's not how one becomes a Christian. If there's no personal surrender where you owned it, then I would not say that person's a Christian by default because their parents were. Family of origin does not matter. Your rituals do not matter. Your education does not matter. Your works do not matter. The only way to stand confidently and secure before God is to put your faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Only way to do it. One guy says this. He says, The flesh is always self-reliant, while the spirit creates Christ-reliance. The flesh always trusts in its performance, the Spirit gives confidence in Christ's performance. So this, again, one of, my, one of my biggest fears for us is that many of you see Christianity like this. You see Christianity, hey guys, can you put the phone away please? Thank you. That many of you see Christianity like this. You see it as just getting your act together. You see it as I'm going to come to Jesus, and I do the church thing, and I'm mixing in Jesus with the church thing, and i got to get my act together. And that's how you view the Christian faith. That's, that's religious legalism. Just getting your act together is not about this internal heart faith that leads to a change in behavior, right? So you becoming a Christian is not about just you getting your act together. And your parents are like, you need to get it together. You need to get in church and get it together and start behaving better. No, true life-giving faith might lead to different behavior, but it's got to come from this belief in the heart and this internal transformation that Paul is talking about here. True Christianity is to realize that you have nothing to offer him. Absolutely nothing to offer him whatsoever. You just receive his work. And you're transformed by it. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses uh, 4 to 6. <clears throat> Paul's going through, like, his own personal story there of, of what he's put his confidence in um, through most of his life. But Paul's saying if, 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 if anybody's playing the game of putting confidence in the flesh, Paul's saying, I could win that game. I could beat anybody in this room if we're talking about putting confidence in the flesh and working our way towards salvation. He's listing off those things. So look down at verse 7. This is uh, Paul talking about how to know Christ. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as wait for it, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul looks at all of his accomplishments. Everything he saw as gain, 
and he puts it in the loss column. If you picture two columns, everything that Paul saw as gain, positives, things he saw as good and right before God, he now puts all those things in the loss column. He sees those things as loss. He says that he has suffered the loss of all things. This is not just some theological idea. He really had suffered the loss of all things. When he was young, he was a proud Jew. He had prestige and a powerful family and morals. He was seen as holy by other people. He was envied by other people. And now he's in prison. He's lost everything for Christ. He really has lost everything and suffered the loss of all things. He's lost his home. He's lost his friends. He's lost security. He's lost status. And he's lost it all for Jesus. About a month ago, there's a young man. None of you here know this person, so I can say this. But there's a young man. um, He never went to our church here, but his parents go to our church here. And this young man is in, in jail right now. And I went to go see him. I went to go. You, you can't see him in person. I have to see him through a video screen and a telephone discussion. But at his parents' request, I went to go see their son in jail just to encourage him. He's going to be having a lot of legal stuff to go through the next few years. And I'm looking at this man, this young man through a screen. And when you see someone in that state, they really have lost everything. Even the clothes that they're wearing are not their own. There is nothing this young man has that's his own as he sits in prison. Nothing, not one thing. And this is really the state that Paul's in. He really has suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. Not just all the things he had before, but just his physical life. He has suffered the loss of all things for the sake of following Jesus. This is where he is. And not only does he look at his previous works and say it's all loss, but he calls it rubbish. And I love this word. I love this word because it actually isn't as strong as it should be in the text, right? Whenever I hear that word, um, I always think of, of England or London, right? Like we're I'm taking my family to, uh, we're actually going to be gone for about the next two Sundays and next Wednesday. We're taking our whole family over to the Middle East to go visit a missionary couple that we know over there in the, in the UAE. And we're going to fly back through London. We're actually going to spend Thanksgiving Day in London. It's going to be a lot of fun for our kids. And whenever you're in London, you'll never hear someone say, hey, where's the trash can? That's what we say. They say what? They say, Where's the rubbish bin? They call it the rubbish bin. It's the rubbish bin, right? And so that's the cleaned up version of this word, okay? I'll tell you the, the, real, the real word in the Greek that Paul is using here is much stronger. It's associated with animal excrement, to get real literal here. The theological term is doggy doo-doo here. Some people would say it's such a strong word, it's like the equivalent in the Greek of the S word in our vocabulary today. It's that strong of a word. Now, language is kind of a funny thing because, you know, my kids are in fifth grade now and second grade. Second grade, right, Courtney? 
Second grade, is that right? That was a joke. I know what grade Sienna's in. Um, oh, dad of the year right here. But language is a funny thing. So when your kids first go off to school, um, and our kids do not go to like a more sheltered school, so when they go off to school, you're just waiting for the day. Because you, you ask your kids, you're like, hey, so did you learn any words at school today? We're not teaching them, like, what words are bad. We're, we're like, I hope they don't even know those words. But we just, like, ask them questions, like, so did you learn any words at school? And we kind of make it seem, you know, tame. And then they're going to tell us at some point, like, yeah, I learned this word. And we're like, yeah, that's a bad word. Don't say that word. And it's been really stressful because the last several years, my kids will come home, and one of them will say, like, Daddy, someone said a really bad word at school today. Oh, what'd they say? He's like, he said the, the D word. And I'm like, oh, it's happened. It's finally happened. So, so whisper in my ear, what did he say? This boy on the playground, he said, dumb. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that's bad. That's bad. But like, I'm not going to teach him the other word. And then another time, Sienna, she says, you know, someone said this really bad word today. And I said, what did they say? They said the, they said the S word. Oh, no, it's happened. What is, what is the S word? They said stupid. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's awful. That's so awful that they said that word. And then someone, one day, one of them said, Daddy, someone said the worst word on the playground today. And I'm like, okay, here it goes. This is it. And I said, what'd they say? And they, they said the, the F word. And I'm like, oh, no, it's happened. The granddaddy of all words. What did they say? Whispered in my ear. They said fat. I'm like... Yes, that is awful. They should never say that word, right? And so when you're teaching kids words, we know there's this like hierarchy of, 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 of things we associate with these kinds of words. Well, when Paul uses this word, some will say that this is the Greek word equivalent of like one of those kinds of words because he's looking at all of his accomplishments and saying this is like what you would refer to as animal excrement. This is how Paul views his previous works before he came to know Christ. And it's a powerful image, a powerful image. Everything he once took pride in, he now sees in this way. Here's what this tells us about knowing Christ. You can write this down. Gaining Christ starts with counting your religious accomplishments as loss. And I want you to see this. Right here is the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of knowing Jesus. In the Christian faith, we gain by losing. All our religious accomplishments, we don't gain Christ until we see all of that as loss. And again, here's my fear. If you've been raised in the church, which is most of you probably, you grow up immersed in this Christian world, doing lots of Christian things, And so do you ever see how desperately you need Christ? Do you ever see how desperate you need him to save you? 
Because many of you have lived, many of us have lived cleaned up lives on the outside like Paul did. And that kind of person is maybe less likely to truly see their need for a Savior. So knowing Christ always starts with recognizing you have nothing to offer him. Nothing. Look down at verse 9. This is now how to know Christ in verse 9. He says, and be found in him. So the connecting thing, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I'm going to take you really quickly through several ideas of of how someone knows Christ. The first is justification. This is trusting Christ alone as your righteousness. You do not truly become a Christian until you see Christ as your righteousness. This is called, the theological term is called imputed righteousness, meaning that Jesus lived a perfect life that you and I cannot live. And when you put your faith and trust in him and his work for us on the cross, and you believe in the resurrection, when you, when you, when you come to God with a heart faith that believes those things, then he imputes his righteousness to you. He gives you his righteousness. And his righteousness is now applied to us. This is like a courtroom image, a courtroom metaphor. You are declared not guilty before the judge. But it goes further than that. You're not just declared not guilty, but you are declared perfectly righteous. If you were on trial for a crime, you'd be found guilty or not guilty. And when they say you're not guilty, that means you're just not guilty about the crime that you're on trial for. But the great part about justification is you're not just declared innocent or not guilty. You are declared perfectly righteous because the righteousness of Christ applies to you. It's imputed righteousness. I also love in verse 9, that first phrase, it says, and be found in him. One of the most popular expressions today is, um, they may not say it out loud, but they, they, they imply it. People will say, I need to find myself. There have been people, countless people who have left friendships, marriages, families, their faith, the church, Because they'll say, I need to find myself. And when you look at verse 9, it says, be found in him. You you get found when you find Jesus. You, You get found in Christ. It's true, we are all lost and need to be found, but we don't go find ourselves, cast off responsibility and just go find ourselves. We get found in Jesus. And we see it in verse 9. Look at verse 10 that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is now sanctification. Know Christ more and become more like him. Once you become a Christian, the rest of your life is sanctification, spiritual growth. This is the process of sanctification. And then look at verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead 
this is now glorification. This is future stuff. This is like when you're in the presence of Christ stuff. And so Paul's talking about anticipating our own resurrection. With Paul, you and I often see the future as just the future. For Paul, the future always was to impact the present. The future reality should always impact our present reality. And we see it in the works of Paul. So this is Paul's testimony. I'm just going to ask you a real brief question as you go to discussion. What is your testimony? If someone said, tell me your faith story, what would you tell them? Would it be, I prayed this prayer when I was a kid? Or would it be, I'm from a Christian family, so therefore I'm a Christian? Would it be, I hang around Christians, therefore I'm a Christian? What is your testimony? Do you have a testimony? If, you're, if you consider yourself a believer, if you're raised in the church, most of you think a powerful testimony is you live this life of, life of rebellion and now you're with Christ. But for many of us, a powerful testimony is you recognizing that all the works you thought earned favor with God are now loss. And because you realize those things are loss, you gain Christ. You will not ever gain Christ until you realize how desperate you are for him in need of a Savior. For some of you in the room, you're not yet a believer. You don't have a story because you haven't submitted your life to him. And so I'm not going to do anything crazy. I'm not going to, you know, pray a magic prayer and say, hey, repeat these words after me. But if, if Christ is pursuing you this morning... I'm going to ask you at some point, like whether at your table with your leader, whether it's later on today as God just begins to convict you of your need for him, that you go to him and you cry out and say, God, I need a savior. I need you to save me from my sin. I know you created me for, for more than this. And I want to know you. I want to follow you. And you just genuinely get on your face before God and cry out to him and you decide to follow Jesus. And if you're someone that's in that position, I would love to hear about it. I would love to have our leaders hear about that and what God's working in your life. I know we've gone way over time this morning, but that's okay. I think it's important. Um, you guys can pick some questions at your tables there on the sheets and finish up with your, with your discussion at your tables for a few minutes.